0: New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Adrian Brad waited in the visitor's room at Vienna Correctional Center. Brad and the other governors of the Gangster Disciples took turns making the bi-weekly six-hour trek from Chicago to visit Larry Hoover, their incarcerated leader.
1: When Larry walked in, Brad stood to greet him. They shook hands firmly. They were businessmen, after all.
0: Brad had good news today. Their latest street policy had been implemented and profits were on the rise. Dope all up. Good, 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 he said.
1: Larry was pleased. We might be, like I say, on the road again, he responded. Then he sang a few lines of happy days are here again.
0: If only Larry had known, hidden inside Brad's visitor pass was a microscopic recording device. In another room, a police task force was listening to every incriminating word. I'm Howell Hargett.
1: And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the ParCast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld
0: and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them.
1: This is our second episode on Larry Hoover, leader of Chicago's Gangster Disciples. Though he'd been in prison since 1973, Larry continued to oversee the gang's operations from his cell for decades.
0: You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory.
1: If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: After David Barksdale's death in 1974, the gang, once known as the Black Gangster Disciples, split into two groups, the Black Disciples and the Gangster Disciples. Larry took charge of the latter, crowning himself King Larry he ruled his subjects from his cell in Stateville Prison.
1: It turned out that prison was the perfect recruiting pool for a gang. As Larry said, quote, in the midst of a severe, austere prison environment that is charged with the potential for violence at any given moment, the lone individual is vulnerable. One's safety in prison is a tenuous proposition at best, end quote but join up with the gangster disciples and the lone individual became 2,000 men.
0: Because of the structure and routine of prison life, it was easier for Larry to monitor and control his members. He was also better protected from rival gang violence and attempts on his life. Once members were released from prison, they brought Larry's instructions back to the streets of the South Side and continued to grow his ranks.
1: Larry expected his members to follow a strict code of conduct while locked up and on the outside. Among the rules, no drug use and no violence toward rivals unless the king decreed it.
0: The prison guards appreciated this. In Hoover's words, one thing about prisons is they are real volatile. It could be calm one minute and the next minute, it could blow up. I kept it from blowing up.
1: GD members who didn't follow the rules were subjected to beatings of their own, so bad that they were often hospitalized. Members have said that if they tried to fight back against a disciplinary beating, it only got worse. This zero-tolerance policy instilled a strong discipline in Hoover's organization.
0: Because of the amount of control Larry wielded over his members, the guards at Stateville often turned to him for help. They were easily convinced to meet any demands he might have.
1: The GDs were able to bribe guards into smuggling cocaine and marijuana inside to sell to other inmates. For $50, the guards would turn a blind eye to sex between inmates and visitors. Hoover even claimed that while at Stateville, he paid bribes to have keys made for, quote, every door in that penitentiary except the doors to leave.
0: A former Stateville guard seconded the idea that Hoover ran Stateville, coming and going as he pleased, flanked by gangster disciple bodyguards armed with homemade knives. He said Hoover and his girlfriend even had secret late-night visits in the warden's office.
1: By 1978, five years into Larry's stay, the staff catered to nearly his every whim. There was only one request they wouldn't fulfill— Better food.
0: The food in the Stateville cafeteria was notoriously inedible. Not just bad tasting, it was often totally spoiled. In April of 1978, King Larry had had enough.
1: Larry had some experience with community activism. In the late 60s, he and the gangster disciples had led pickets and labor strikes against racial discrimination. So, true to form, he organized a work stoppage among the inmates until the warden addressed the food problem.
0: That, it turned out, was the upper limit of what the guards would tolerate. The labor strike was broken up, and Larry was transferred to a different prison.
1: The conditions at Pontiac Correctional Center were even worse than Stateville. It was overcrowded, and the squalor and violence were borderline inhumane. Disappointingly, the food was no better there either. But most importantly, the prison was also badly understaffed.
0: They were woefully unprepared to handle a force like King Larry.
1: On July 22, 1978, at 9.45 a.m., about 500 prisoners were returning to their cell house from the recreational yard.
0: At the same time, another 500 or more prisoners were entering the yard from the chapel, where they'd just been watching a movie.
1: As the two groups met in the yard, chaos erupted, quickly devolving into a full-scale riot. Inmates attacked officers with shanks. They set fires in nearby buildings, and the spreading flames caused more prisoners to join the fray.
0: 450 police officers arrived, shooting eight rounds of tear gas into the prison yard. Local residents lined the streets, drawn to the sounds of chaos, it took hours to return everyone to their cells.
1: And when the dust settled, the police lieutenant and two correctional officers were dead. Three more officers were critically injured.
0: It was one of the deadliest riots in Illinois prison history. After that, prisoners were put under deadlock for three months, not allowed to leave their cells for any reason.
1: Their meals were brought to them, all recreational time and work assignments were canceled, and no phone calls were allowed. They couldn't even leave their cells to shower.
0: The ringleader of the riot was none other than Larry Hoover. He and 16 other inmates were charged with murder, attempted murder, mob action, and conspiracy. They were dubbed by the media as the Pontiac 17.
1: An investigation of the riot was launched, and six of the Pontiac 17 even went to trial. But after a two-year inquest, all charges were eventually dropped or acquitted.
0: Hoover had made his point. He was the king. In the next nine years he spent in Pontiac, he never started another riot. He didn't need to.
1: With his power secured, Larry set his sights on a new pursuit, education. Having been expelled from school at age 15, he was practically illiterate when he entered the prison system. He said, I had never read a book in my life, not even a comic book.
0: Larry started studying in the prison library, eventually earning his GED and EMT license. He became an avid reader, making his way through the prison's whole eclectic library.
1: Some of his favorites were Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead and Machiavelli's The Prince. He said of the latter, it's like required reading just to be able to stay in a conversation in the yard.
0: But the novel that resonated with him the most was Boss, the 1971 biography of the late Richard J. Daly.
1: Working-class Irish-born Daly served as mayor of Chicago for 21 years, He's credited with saving Chicago's economy from the fate of other Rust Belt cities like Detroit. But several members of his administration were charged and convicted of corruption.
0: To Larry Hoover, Daley's corruption was a feature, not a flaw. He was downright inspired by how Irish and Italian gangs had controlled Chicago's politicians in the early 1900s.
1: In the 60s, before Larry was locked up, the city's street gangs had joined forces to fight for civil rights, but to no effect. Reading about the former Mayor daily, he realized they'd been going about it all wrong.
0: History had proven that criminal gangs could become so powerful, so accepted, that the entire city bowed to them. The key to that transition, he found, lay in politics. It was time to steer the gangster disciples in a new direction.
1: Coming up, we'll discover Larry's methods for political action.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: Larry Hoover had never read a book before he was transferred to Pontiac Correctional Center in 1978. But once he was there, he discovered the power of education.
0: Larry spent his days in the Pontiac Prison Library reading Machiavelli, Ayn Rand, and early Chicago history. He was formulating a new plan. He wanted to take the gangster disciples from street gang to political powerhouse, just as the Irish gangs of the early 1900s had done. In
1: 1982, Hoover released a 45-page manifesto called The Blueprint that outlined his vision for the new direction of the GDs. He urged his followers to turn away from crime, educate themselves, learn about business, and aggressively involve themselves in local politics.
0: It was spiritual, philosophical, and sociological with a focus on how the mass incarceration of black men had impacted their community. He wrote, we have found ourselves gangbanging, shooting, robbing, and killing each other. He called gangs byproducts of the same environment that produced the gangster era.
1: This was nothing new, Hoover and his cohorts had been well aware of this cycle of oppression and violence for decades. Chicago's street gangs had even banded together for civil rights activism on a few occasions. But Hoover had his own plan for how to change their circumstances.
0: Hoover felt that the black community of Chicago didn't understand the power they could wield with their vote. He said, for a black man to have anything to say about what goes on in the world, He's got to be involved with what controls the blacks, and that's the political apparatus.
1: Like the gangs of the early 20th century, the GDs could organize themselves into a voting coalition, putting forward their own candidates and then pressing them for legislation that would help their community.
0: This was a complete paradigm shift for the gangster disciples, and Hoover solidified it by restructuring the gangs' entire hierarchy. He was no longer king, but chairman of the board.
1: He established two boards of directors. One controlled GD actions on the streets and another controlled activities in prison. Below the boards were governors or area coordinators.
0: Hoover decreed that GD would no longer stand for gangster disciples, but instead growth and development.
1: He outlined the six principles of growth and development love, life, loyalty, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. He wrote Through business and politics, we can build an economical base that will ensure us boundless power and wealth.
0: But as much as Hoover was rebranding the GDs, they were, at the end of the day, still a street gang. His manifesto preached about the dangers of crime, but all the while, the organization kept up their drug dealing and routine violence.
1: By the mid-80s, the GDs controlled most of the public housing complexes in Chicago. Heavily armed GD soldiers worked the buildings 24 hours a day, patrolling and slinging drugs. They assembled in the courtyard every night to perform military-style drills. Residents were subjected to pat-downs when they came home to make sure they weren't buying drugs from other sources.
0: One of these complexes alone, the Cabrini Green, brought in a million dollars annually from crack cocaine sales.
1: Young kids who lived in the housing projects were recruited as soldiers. It was easy to win their loyalty by giving them money and food.
0: Hoover saw the drug trade as a double-edged sword, It was the cause of violence and addiction, but it was one of the only consistent and reliable sources of income available in their community.
1: Until the GDs had the power and influence to create legitimate jobs, their members needed some way to put food on the table. Drug dealing would have to suffice.
0: As the chairman of the newly renamed Growth and Development Organization, Larry Hoover was seen as a model inmate. After that first riot, he'd been on his best behavior. In 1987, he was granted relocation to a minimum security prison in Vienna, Illinois.
1: 300 miles south of Chicago, Vienna was a fenceless institution that felt more like a college campus than a correctional facility. Hoover was able to go into town to shop and his visitations were much less restricted.
0: Hoover has stated that by moving to Vienna, he was able to distance himself from the gangster disciples. In minimum security, he didn't need the protection of being the king. Instead, he could focus on his political activism.
1: There's a lot of evidence that contradicts this statement, including the twice-weekly visits he received from his directors and governors, but we'll get to that in a moment. In
0: 1990, Larry founded 21st Century Vote, which stood for Voices of Total Empowerment. Their goal was to educate Chicago's poor and disenfranchised about the role of government and to empower young people to effect change.
1: Hoover said, quote, Street gang members don't trust the system, don't use the system, because they believe it can't work for them. By them not taking advantage of the system, things are going to keep on going in the direction that they're going in. But if somebody shows them that they can get involved and they can make some changes, then they'll listen. At least you'll get their attention, end quote.
0: In the early 90s, 21st Century Vote ran voter registration drives, community cleanups, and a 5,000-person peaceful march on City Hall. Vote volunteers were certified as deputy voter registrars, galvanized by the words of Malcolm X, It ain't a war of the bullet, it's a war of the ballot. In
1: 1993, the organization backed its first candidates for city council, Wallace Gator Bradley, a former GD member, and Hal Baskin, a former classmate of Larry's.
0: That September leading up to the election, 21st Century Vote held a picnic in rural Kankakee County, Illinois. Over 10,000 attendees were treated to complimentary hamburgers and hot dogs, as well as free blood pressure tests. Almost 200 volunteers were on hand to help register new voters and hand out copies of Larry's manifesto, The Blueprint.
1: On a professional sound system, Larry gave a pre recorded speech to the picnic crowd, outlining his vision for the future of the community.
0: A few months later, Larry organized a peace summit of 150 high-ranking gang members from around the city. He believed that the young people in gangs would listen to their organization's leadership in ways they wouldn't listen to their parents or teachers.
1: One of the speakers, State Representative Koi Pugh, told the crowd, 21st century is the vehicle for you to be involved. Until we do that, we will continue to be undereducated and over-incarcerated.
0: Neither of Larry's chosen candidates won their races that year, but 21st Century continued their mission, recruiting more voters and spreading political education throughout the community.
1: But law enforcement officials were suspicious of the new leaf Larry had turned over. Of the over $100,000 donated to 21st Century Vote in its first two years, only $2,500 of it was itemized.
0: That $2,500 came from Save the Children Promotions, an organization run by Wendy Jenkins, Hoover's common-law wife. There were no reported sources at all for the remaining $97,500.
1: Police suspected Hoover was using nonprofits to launder money from his drug trade.
0: Their suspicions were also bolstered by the membership of 21st Century Vote. Almost everyone involved was either a former or current gangster disciple.
1: Retired Chicago police officer Robert Dart said of the group When you join a gang, you're in for the long haul. I see gang members rampant throughout 21st Century Vote. I don't see where they have done anything to take the narcotics out of the neighborhoods that they're involved in. I can't see how one can separate one from the other."
0: To many, it seemed like the gangster disciples' sudden interest in the political machine had to have ulterior motives. It was just unclear what those motives were.
1: But in 1993, the true goal appeared to crystallize. Larry Hoover was up for parole.
0: Twenty-first century votes circulated petitions advocating for Larry's release, garnering thousands of signatures. Governor Jim Edgar was flooded with letters begging him to put Hoover up for parole.
1: Over two dozen black politicians and activists, including former Mayor Eugene Sawyer, wrote letters to the parole board in support of Hoover.
0: An assistant high school principal from Chicago's South Side wrote to the parole board, For 20 years now, Larry has been a model prisoner. During this time he has sought and achieved a higher education in prison, which will also contribute to his new goal to be an upstanding, productive member of society. His self-worth and self-image have been changed, from his own cognizant perspective.
1: The possibility of Hoover's release sparked conversations about what the goal of a prison sentence truly was. Hoover had been sent to prison, and in the eyes of outsiders, was an absolute success story. He devoted himself to peace, activism, and self-improvement.
0: But to Cook County's State's attorney, Jack O'Malley, Hoover's supporters were being misled. He said that behind Hoover's anti-crime facade, there's no question he is continuing his activities. As we're speaking, the gang he leads is murdering children.
1: U.S. Representative Mel Reynolds was one of the few black politicians who wrote to the parole board opposing Hoover's release. He said, quote, it's absurd to say we have to look to the prisons and gangs for role models in our community, and the ones who think we do are the real ones who are out of contact.
0: When Hoover's parole hearing arrived in August 1993, the supervisor of Cook County's State's Attorney's Gang Unit, Jack Hines, appeared before the board with damning testimony.
1: He said, quote, After 20 years... Larry Hoover still has the blood of William Young, still has the blood of countless other young men from the south side, the north side, from other cities, from other states on his hands. Through this orchestration of legitimacy, he's trying to wipe that blood off. Please don't let him do that. Please do not release Larry Hoover.
0: Ultimately, the board agreed with Hines. Hoover's bid for parole was rejected 8 to 0 in their decision they said the board still believes that parole at this time would deprecate the serious nature of your offense and promote disrespect for the law
1: Larry called himself a political prisoner alleging that they denied his parole because of his activism not because of the seriousness of his murder conviction
0: He said, they don't allow me to change, they don't allow me to mature, and that's based on my political views. They don't believe that I can be a force throughout the black community, that I wake up these young guys and show them a different way.
1: But the parole board was correct. Political activism aside, Larry was far from a reformed man. He was still running his gang from Vianna prison with breathtaking ease.
0: Visitors were allowed two days a week, and Larry always had a guest to entertain. The GD's governors and directors brought him news from the streets, as well as comforts from home. In the minimum security facility, he was allowed to have jewelry, new clothes, and outside food.
1: When the GD's returned to Chicago, they delivered Larry's instructions to the masses.
0: The police knew full well that Larry's visits with high-ranking G.D. members were more than just friendly chats with old friends. The meetings were too consistent.
1: Larry also refused to speak to any of those friends on the phone, knowing those calls were monitored. If they weren't discussing business, what was there to be so shy about?
0: They'd imprisoned him, denied him parole, transferred him to three different prisons, but in the past 20 years, Larry Hoover's power had only grown.
1: Finally, in 1993, the Chicago police formed a new task force aptly named Operation Headache. Its sole purpose was to put an end to King Larry's reign.
0: Coming up... We'll dive into the second investigation into Larry Hoover. Now back to the story. In 1993, after 20 years in prison, Larry Hoover was still the man in charge of the gangster disciples. All the police needed was to prove it.
1: Larry's recent parole attempts had garnered huge amounts of support from the community who saw him as a reformed man and model inmate his parole had been denied, for now at least.
0: But if Larry was able to grow the GDs into a multi-million dollar organization while behind bars, the police could hardly imagine what he would do if he ever returned to Chicago unfettered.
1: The Chicago police formed a task force called Operation Headache. If they found evidence that Larry hadn't distanced himself from the drug trade as much as he'd claimed, they could use it to move Hoover to a more controlled facility, finally cutting off the
0: GDs at the head. Finding a gangster disciple who would be willing to testify against Hoover was practically impossible. Everyone knew there was a zero-tolerance policy for snitching. Anyone who spoke to the police was signing their own death warrant.
1: Even still, police were able to find one member willing to cooperate, Charles Banks, a 28-year-old GD. In exchange for a reduced drug sentence, he agreed to wear a wire.
0: Banks arranged to meet with another gangster disciple member to buy two ounces of cocaine. He wore a wire and brought along an undercover officer, posing as his cousin.
1: To his relief, the deal went off without a hitch they were one step closer to proving Larry Hoover's
0: involvement. But four months later, the GDs found out Banks was working with the police. Banks was getting out of his car when he was ambushed and shot to death. Twice in the back and six times in the face.
1: Their only informant was gone. And after that execution, finding another GD who would cooperate was a lost cause.
0: The task force kept digging into every high-ranking GD they knew of. They tapped the phones of a restaurant on the South side called June Shrimp, which was owned and operated by Larry Hoover’s right-hand man, Shorty G. Shell.
1: The wiretap didn’t turn up anything useful, because every time someone tried to talk business over the phone, Shell scolded them. That kind of discussion was only to be done in person.
0: But this gave investigators an even better idea. Hidden cameras.
1: Police snuck into Shell's restaurant and placed a tiny camera behind a clock on the wall, perfectly positioned to capture any shady business deals that might occur inside.
0: Less than an hour later, Shell entered the restaurant, walked directly up to the camera, and announced, You ain't got nothing, and you ain't going to get nothing. Then he ripped a clock down off the wall.
1: He might have been tipped off by his girlfriend, who worked in the Chicago PD's gang unit.
0: If the task force wanted evidence on Hoover, they'd have to get more creative. They'd have to take their hidden cameras directly to Vienna Correctional Center.
1: Vienna was a minimum security facility, with very little surveillance. Hoover thought he was safe by meeting with his board of directors in the visitor's room, where there were no cameras.
0: But every person who visited the prison had to wear a Guest Pass badge for the duration of their visit. The police placed incredibly small transmitters inside these badges, which were connected to receivers on the prison grounds.
1: Using this method, the task force recorded 65 hours of conversations between Hoover and his visitors before the bugs were ever discovered.
0: In those tapes, Hoover was recorded saying, Do a survey around town. I want to know what everybody is doing, heroin, reefer, cocaine, who's moving what. This is our land. We fought battles on this land, so everybody is going to have to pay taxes, you know. You tell everyone, if we have to start shooting and fucking shit up that way, then nobody making any money.
1: It was undeniable now that Larry was still running the Gangster Disciples. The task force also now had evidence against dozens of his visitors, nearly all of them high-ranking G.D. members.
0: On August 31, 1995, guards entered Hoover's cell at 4 a.m. and told him to get dressed. He was brought outside, where three carloads of federal agents waited for him. They handcuffed him and drove him to the airport to be flown to Chicago.
1: Once they landed, Hoover was walked in to meet a federal judge. He was being indicted on drug conspiracy charges.
0: At the same time, 38 other gangster disciples were arrested in a massive raid. They were charged with drug conspiracy and money laundering.
1: While awaiting trial, Hoover launched a massive campaign in his own defense. He recorded a rap where he compared himself to Malcolm X., stating that he was a political prisoner.
0: Wendy Jenkins, his common-law wife, sold t-shirts saying, free all political prisoners. She also formally published his old manifesto, The Blueprint.
1: Gator Bradley, the former city council candidate backed by 21st Century Vote, set up a website that laid out Hoover's defense and detailed the work he'd done to change the GDs into a political movement.
0: Once in court, Hoover's defense team argued that the secret recordings were unconstitutional and violated his right to privacy. But the judge disagreed and allowed the tapes to be played on record.
1: Hoover himself stated that the recorded conversations had been tampered with. He said they were sliced up and put together. If all 65 hours were transcribed, it would show exculpatory evidence.
0: As it turned out, the state didn't even need the tapes. One of Hoover's top men, Adrian Brad, took the stand to testify that Larry was still the king of the gangster disciples.
1: Brad confirmed that every person that dealt drugs in Chicago's South Side had to send one day of their weekly profits to Hoover as a tax, which totaled between $200,000 and $300,000 a week. Those who didn't pay were either assaulted or murdered.
0: In the course of their investigation, police discovered a list detailing who was selling what in Chicago and how much they owed Larry. It was found in a folder marked L. Sr. in the offices of Save the Children Promotions, a business run by Wendy Jenkins.
1: The jury deliberated for a short 12 hours, Larry Hoover was found guilty on all counts—conspiracy, extortion, money laundering, and running a continuing criminal enterprise from prison.
0: He would never have the opportunity for parole again.
1: Hoover was transferred to a super maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado. This effectively cut off 95% of Hoover's communication with the outside world. King Larry was dethroned.
0: Larry blames his political activism for his conviction. He said, I think 21st century vote was my best effort and my most costly effort. It motivated these indictments.
1: At first, law enforcement saw the crippling of the GDs as a huge success. Larry and the majority of his high-ranking officials were now behind bars. And for a time, violence was in a downward trend. In
0: 1993, 934 people had died as a result of gang violence. By 2003, this number was down to 599. However, this drop plateaued at around 500 by 2004.
1: In Hoover's absence, a power vacuum emerged. One G.D. soldier was quoted after the trial saying, Now there is no authority, no one to report to, no king to control his subjects.
0: After the crackdowns in Chicago, the gangster disciples moved to other places to avoid authorities. By 1999, they were distributing drugs in 42 states. Today, they primarily operate in the Great Lakes, Southeast, and West Central regions. In these smaller cities, gangster disciples are reported to regularly extort, intimidate, assault, and commit homicide in order to further or protect their criminal activities. Most violence is targeted at rival gangs or at dealers who fail to pay extortion fees.
1: By 2003, The gang was estimated to have between 50,000 and 100,000 members and associates. In Chicago alone, they number 35,000.
0: According to the Chicago Police Department, about 3,000 shootings occur every year, and 85% are related to gang violence. Many of them can be attributed to the gangster disciples.
1: Hoover remains in Colorado where he'll stay for the rest of his life with no possibility of parole. Ironically, Jeff Fort, once leader of the Black Stone Nation and one of Hoover's largest rivals, is serving time in the same facility.
0: Hoover is still a controversial figure, both a criminal and an activist. His manifesto, The Blueprint, continues to circulate and inspire people to change the city for the better.
1: Luckily, many gang members have followed Larry Hoover's words, not his actions, leaving their criminal activities behind, educating themselves, and trying to be role models for the next generation.
0: Thanks again for listening to Kingpins.
1: You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory.
0: Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll
1: see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Mandy Bassard and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.